Welcome to Roadcase, the podcast that explores the live music experience. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Josh Rosenberg, and I'll be taking you on a journey through in-depth interviews with performers and key people in the industry to explore the magic of live music, how it can be totally transformative for both fans and performers, and we'll look at how they take it all out on the road. It's going to be a great ride, so here we go. Okay, welcome back to Roadcase. This is your host, Josh Rosenberg. I'm so psyched to be here today. Thanks for joining me, and thanks for being here. If you're a returning listener to Roadcase, and if you're new to Roadcase, and here for Tim Bloom of the Mother Hips, welcome to the Roadcase community. I'm really psyched for this episode. Um, love for you to get involved with the Roadcase community, whether you're a new or a returning listener. Uh, love to have you aboard, and there's a couple ways that you can get involved. Uh, one of the easiest ways is to follow us on social media. Uh, we're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I love Instagram. If you comment, I promise I'll like your comments and I'll get back to you. Let's have an interaction. Let me know what's up. Um, the handle is at Roadcase Pod on those three platforms. We also have a YouTube channel, Roadcase Podcast, where we post some stuff. Um, you can also contact me through email. I'm at info at roadcasepod.com. Would love to hear uh, reactions to shows, your thoughts, suggestions for guests. Just say, hey, I promise I'll get back to you. Another thing you can do to help out Roadcase and show your support for the podcast is to rate and review uh, this podcast on your favorite listening platform and also subscribe to Roadcase on your favorite listening platform. For example, the most listened to and used platform is Apple Podcasts. Um, if you're on that right now, you just hit uh, you hit look at all episodes and you scroll to the bottom and there's a place where you can rate and review, throw down a review, throw down a rating. I'd really appreciate, really helps. And I'd really uh, appreciate your support. So, uh, this week I'm really psyched to have Tim Bloom of the mother hips. This is my 50th episode of Roadcase. I'm really proud. Thanks so much for being aboard for that and for your support. So happy to have Tim Bloom here of the Mother Hips. I love their music. I'm not ashamed to say I'm a new fan. I love when I'm a new fan of a band because it gives me an entire plethora of choices of new music, and I just love that. They're 20 19 release the live release live from the great american music hall is quickly becoming one of my favorite live albums so check that out and as part of their 30th anniversary they're re-releasing all of their albums uh on vinyl uh one by one you can check out go to their website uh check that out um they're just an enduring uh california-based band that i love i loved this conversation with tim he's a very reflective soul a very intriguing human he had a really serious serious injury uh paragliding 
and we talk about that a little bit. It really affected his life. Uh, Tim and I have a lot of common ground. We both ski. We like the mountains. We grew up in Southern California playing volleyball. So that was fun to kind of have that commonality. In terms of timing of this episode, we talked to Tim. Uh, you know, this occurred in about mid-May, this interview. So we talked about his early COVID shows and what those socially distant shows look like. I just, I loved chatting with Tim. He's a great soul. Uh, we went in a lot of different directions. I know you're going to love this interview. Uh, it's the 50th episode for Road Case, and Mother Hips are here because of their 30th anniversary of their being together as a band. So thank you again for being here. Thanks for your support of Road Case. And thank you, Tim Bloom, for taking the time to sit down with me on this episode of Road Case. And here we go. Okay, I'm really happy to have Tim Bloom with me, man. Hey, Tim, how, how are you doing today? Good, I'm doing great. Nice to be here with you. Cool. Oh, yeah, thanks. It's so great to have you. So, wait, I didn't even ask you where you're, um, where you're joining me from. I mean, I know it's Northern California. Yeah, I'm here in my home in Fairfax, California, which is... Uh, uh, Fairfax is a, a small town within Marin County. So, um, oh, okay. Just about right. maybe the, 10 minutes sort of west of San Rafael. 10 minutes. Okay. So closer to the ocean than San Rafael. Uh, yeah. A little bit. But you got to climb a lot of mountains to, yeah, get, there, to get there. Yeah. To say that it's close <laughs> to the ocean is a little misleading. Yeah. I mean, as the crow flies, it's probably only like seven miles, but to it, but it's yeah. a lot of mountain roads between here and there. It probably takes about an yeah. hour, an hour. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it is a misnomer then, but um, a decent isolation place to be and quiet and um, yeah. kind of, that's, I assume that's sort of where you spent the majority of your COVID time, right? I certainly did. Right, right in this <laughs> very room. Yeah. 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 So, and you guys, um, uh, as being part of the mother hips, obviously um, you were, um, have this new compilation that's coming out, but what is that? Um, what does that mean to you? And was that something that you came up with? Uh, obviously, this is you, you've you've been creating this and thinking about this for a while. Was this something that was born out of the pandemic, or had you been thinking about it before? Well, it, what it is, what's happening is that um, our record label, Blue Rose Music, is releasing all of our previous releases on vinyl. Um, mm -hmm. so it's 10, 10 records, most of which have not ever seen vinyl before. So, um, Oh, really? So we, <clears throat> the idea was to do 12 releases, one per month for the whole year of 2021, which so far so good, but we'll see how, we'll see how that goes. But, um, and all of those will culminate with the release of a brand new record that we just finished recording. Oh, wow. That's so great. It's a whole bunch of reissues and then at the end, one brand new record. So it's a pretty So buy all cool our new year. stuff and then here's your gift because you already did. <laughs> yeah. You get like a special bonus at the end. If you buy all yeah. our old albums, you get our new album for free. No, I'm just it's like a time that's... life at, yeah, offer on TV. Right. Buy, act now and for four easy payments of nineteen ninety nine, you can uh, yeah. get the entire Mother Hips catalog on vinyl. Hopefully more, but than, wait, hopefully more than that. But there's, there's more. more. 
Oh, there's more. No, there's not more, but <laughs> usually there is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't know when I've been up late night watching the time life commercials, but now we're, now we're, uh, we're revealing our collective ages, which is probably Jeez. over a hundred if you added us up. So that would be, I got, um, I got half of that. I'm good for half of that. I know you just, you, did you just turn 50 this year? Yeah. Uh, no, last year I'll be 51 in July. So, yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's all. Makes all you think a little bit, right? It's all downhill. <laughs> so what's your, what's your attitude on turning 50? What does that mean for you? I don't, I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion about it. I'm glad I'm still around to, to turn any age. That's pretty much the, my, my main takeaway from that. Turning 50 is better than not turning. Not turning 50. Well, George Burns is with a famous quote was like, you know, what does it feel to be 90? Well, it sure beats the shit out of the alternative, beats the heck out of the alternative. Yeah. I guess he probably said, right? That's, that's what I say. Did you not think you were going to make it to this point? I mean, you had that super, that incredibly serious accident that must have knocked some sense into you were giving you like an incredible amount of perspective. It definitely, yeah, it definitely knocked me down a few notches. Not, not that I was walking around with some complex that I was, I was indestructible or anything like that, but, but it definitely, um, showed me some reality that I guess I needed to see. Um, yeah. You, you know, you th I, I, I guess the way I, I could say it the best is that I was undertaking a pretty dangerous sport and, um, or whatever you want to call it. I'm, I'm sure you could call it a sport, but activity. And I figured, you know, what's the worst thing that'll happen is I'll break my leg or something like that. It's a pretty common injury for paragliding mm -hmm. for speed flying. But I didn't, I never really thought it through that you, you could break your leg and then you could get a lot of complications through having a broken leg. Yeah. And that's what, exactly what happened to me. So I never quite thought it through. That, you know, I almost died a couple of times, even after my accident. So it was pretty, pretty serious. Um, uh, died as a result of infections that you suffered from that? Bone, bone infection, yeah. Yeah, wow. Jesus, you really had it bad. <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was not good. Yeah, I had a lower leg injury. I was telling you, um, uh, skiing injury. Yeah. I just, I, I'm an excellent skier. I just was... Um, cruising through the trees after lunch in Telluride, not spring of 2009. And um, yeah, just um, hit a tree. I mean, I just made a mistake, right? <laughs> there are trees there. You're yeah. supposed to ski. You don't ski the trees. You ski the space between the trees. You know, you're a skier. The holes between the That's trees. That's right. Yeah. But um, I just, I, I don't know. I hooked a tree. just made a mistake. Uh, snow was set up and you know, um, but the lower leg injury is like a serious thing. Yeah. Because that can get into all kinds yeah, of bad ankles or, you know, circulation shit. And then that happens. And then, right? right. Yeah. It's mostly just like replaced. My lower leg is basically replaced by just a metal. It's like I, my foot is there and it looks more or less normal, but it's basically like a, like a peg leg. I, I can't move anything. I can't really feel wow. anything. Did it change your attitude towards um, your artistic life or music life or touring life? Mm, not, not that much. I mean, I, I, I had to, the first year after that injury, I was, I was, you know, of course, when you get injured, 
you, you never know. Nobody knows that it's going to take two years. It was supposed to, it was just a broken, you know, it was a very severely broken leg, like amputation, but they put my foot back on and said, you should be pretty much good to go in four months. And that's what, you know, that was. So once I could kind of get around in a wheelchair, um, I started playing shows and I got on some crutches and played a lot yeah. of shows. I, I had to, I needed to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. And then I kept getting these infections and it just kept getting worse. So I, I finally had mm. to take like a year off and not play any shows. And, um, and so that was kind of a, you know, again, just more, more humbling experiences. Um, I couldn't work, couldn't really move. Yeah. And yeah, but I, it didn't really change my attitude toward it. I was probably didn't take, there's a lot of things I just didn't take for granted anymore. Like walking, like, yeah. like walking across Basically. your, your home, like holding a cup of coffee in your hand. Like when you're on crutches, you can't do that. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You have to like drink the coffee, set it down and then go walk to where you want to go. Right. Just or little ask like, someone to bring your, carry your coffee. For yeah. You. Yeah. You become a lot more dependent on other people. And that's definitely, I got, I had to get used to that. Yeah. Talk about humbling, right? I mean, truly, <laughs> you truly. learn how your true friends are. Yeah, exactly. Really. And you learn yeah. how fragile that we really are. It's not just about like, will you live or will you die? It's like how, to what degree of quality of life can you have? You know? Yeah. Cause like death is guaranteed, right? It's not the, how you get there is sort of little bit, yeah. not really, I mean, up to you, I don't know, up to, uh, it's, there's a little bit of faith there, but yeah, it's like what condition you're going to get there in. And a lot of it has to do with what's upstairs too, right? Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I kind of went crazy. I think for a while I was dealing with a lot of, a lot of frustration, a lot of despair. And, um, maybe that prepared me for the, for the pandemic too. I don't know. But. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Can anything really prepare you for this? But no, yeah, I, so I you're saying it makes him it made you somewhat mentally tougher. I think, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, and physically yeah. tougher too. Just dealing with 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 um, lots of pain, acute and chronic pain for long periods of time. Yeah, it makes you tougher. Man. That's that's like women with like childbirth and stuff like that. They they're tough because they they go through it multiple times in a lot of, in a lot of cases and right. it makes you tougher for sure. Cause you know, they know, you know, once you go through that, you know, you can take it because yeah. you've done it. Right. You kind of have this, I can do anything kind of attitude or like, I know I can survive this. I know that it's not going to be too much for me. Right. 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 I don't think you can die of pain. Can you? I, I don't, I don't think so. But you can pass out from pain. I think that that's just great. like a, <laughs> That'd be wonderful. Right. You can get hooked on opioids because of pain. Did that? Yeah, that was awful. Oh, really? Huh? Yeah, it was two two years plus of having to take lots of fentanyl and all just everything you name it. it yeah. Terrible. Oh, so you had to just you had to break that habit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a huge problem. And I, like, I don't know if cannabis really there, they're like, Oh, it can be an opioid replacement. I'm not really sure like at what level of usage it, w it would. I talked to a lot of people that are, that have injuries or not. And like, I don't, I'm not sure if it's so much of a substitute. Did you think about it at that time? 
Yeah, I, I experimented with 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 that for sure with with cannabis, both THC and CBDs, mm-hmm. like topical ingesting stuff. And um, personally, for me, I didn't it didn't really help very much. I think there was like I got a little bit of relief from from take like from having THC yeah tablets, but I really am not. A, I don't, I don't, I don't like to, I don't like weed Yeah. at all. So uh-huh. it wasn't, I never was able to take enough of it to really feel like it had any effect. I just, I just don't like the feeling of it anymore. I used to love it, but no, uh-huh. it's been 25 years that I've enjoyed smoking weed. So yeah, it didn't help me personally. Right. Interesting. Um, not to delve into too much stuff, but it always intrigues me. Because, um, well, Actually, I, I wanted to ask you, um, the, it's the thrill-seeking side, though, is what's kind of that, that um, I mean, I'm a skier, I get it, and I hurt myself skiing. One of the things you were saying that, um, um, you know, you're, you're, you're just, you're grateful to still be here, and it, I always regretted not being able to go back to the level where I was, and to, like, not be able to go back at all. I'm fortunate enough to have been able to go back to and doing it to do it, but to not be able to go back at all, yeah. if you really need that level of adrenaline rush, that's got to be really difficult. No, but I can though. I can still ski. I, oh. I ski a ton. Oh, that's awesome then. And actually, I I ski. I think I actually sort of ski. I, I wouldn't say I'm a, it didn't make me a better skier, but I seek out um, opportunities to ski more exciting and more extreme stuff now because i don't have oh yeah you use it for that outlet yeah yeah you need that i I can't really surf anymore because my leg doesn't bend my ankle doesn't bend surfing is pretty hard but skiing for some reason because of the stiff boot i can ski almost as well as as i did before and i've put more effort into it too i've taken some you know more like lessons and having really good skiers watch me and say, this is what you need to be doing to ski. Better. Uh, right on. So I've, I've put more energy into my skiing since my injury. Yeah. Um, what about, what about touring has touring, um, or when did you, when were you able to get back like onto the stage on a more consistent basis? Um, after that injury at that point, um, basically just after like a, a really rough year of trying to tour and then having to go in for more surgeries, I had like 26 surgeries spaced out over like about wow, a two year period. Unbelievable. So the second of those two years, um, my label basically just said, we'll figure out a way. So you, you don't have to mm. tour. We'll help you out financially. So you're not going to kill yourself out there. So that I was able to just focus on just healing and a lot of physical therapy and, um, that was, um, I, I don't think that that protracted healing process was a result of touring and trying to do too much. I mean, it didn't feel good. It wasn't a good idea, but I don't think that touring like with a really badly injured leg, I don't think that made it worse, mm-hmm. but it just was not yeah. very pleasant. Okay. Cause I had like one of those, well, I had four different ones, but those, uh, uh external fixator, which it has like the, with the hands go through your point, foot. Yeah. And there's like those big rings all down your leg and like trying to fly on an airplane with oh, that thing was just every time it bumps against something, it's just oh, like I know. agony. 
you got to clean out the like pins. the little places where the yeah. rods go through. And, yeah, that's nasty. Yeah, that is. Nasty. You had it so worse than I am. Now I'm feeling not so bad about my injury. Wow. <laughs> yeah, right. To make people feel good with music and with your tales of physical woe that are worse than everybody else's. So you not only you, you not only get to create this amazing music and have this amazing amazing musical legacy, but you also get a you know hold over everyone's head that I felt more pain than everybody else. And I'll pr- and I'll and I'll prove it. <laughs> no, no, I don't want to get into that competition. Yeah, no, no, no that's way. not. And, and it's not. And it's, that's a bad one. It's a dubious. It's a dubious yeah, pursuit right. for sure. I'm just glad. I'm just glad that I had people around me to to help me recover. You know, that was. Yeah. That was well, lucky. I'm. I'm just. Um, and I'm. I'm just intrigued by the band. I, I gotta be honest with you. I'm a new. I'm a fan. I'm a new fan, and I just I, I love everything that you guys do, man. Oh, I mean, that's it's cool. just um, and this is such a great time to be listening to your back catalog and all your all your music, and it's it is a good time for that. It's all available now, which is it hasn't been available for some of those records. Right now, I'm jumping on some years. of those for sure. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the Blue Rose Foundation? Because I find that really interesting. And then you're you're donating all the proceeds from the um, from the vinyl sales. Mm-hmm. D- did I understand that correctly? Yeah, that is yeah that is correct. The Blue Rose Foundation um, actually preceded mm-hmm. Blue Rose Music, and the Blue Rose Foundation was started by Joe Paletto and his wife Sarah after one of their close friends passed away suddenly and um, they felt like they wanted to help um, disadvantaged young kids like preschool age kids um, to, to get um, good educations. So they provide scholarships to underprivileged mm-hmm. preschool age kids to go to preschool and have a, to get a good start at, at things. And the label started because the foundation was doing fundraisers using musicians like Jackie Green and Jason Crosby and um, Steve Forbert and some other people. And um, they would raise a bunch of money with these live music events. And then they decided that they should start a record label. And so that was how Blue Rose Music was formed. And then I met Joe Paletto after sometime after that. And then during the pandemic, the label thought it would be a cool idea for us to release all these records because we weren't able yeah. to do anything else. We couldn't play live shows. And then, and then he asked us if, he, if we were all cool with donating the, the, the profits to the Blue Rose Foundation, which we said, sure, yeah, wow. it's a good cause. So, yeah. Not that it's not that it's like, super profitable for anybody, but it's, well, I mean, you're foregoing the the profits from this entire project and, uh, to donate it to a great cause. Have, have you always been philanthropic? No, no. Usually I'm just sort of like survival. mode. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to be philanthropic when you can't even pay your own way, but, um, under, under, understandably. Yeah, no, but, but definitely, um, there's a lot of things, you know, as a musician, you might not be able to donate large amounts of money to causes that you believe in, but you can always donate your music and your, your time. So I have me and the band and most musicians, I know almost all of them, you know, spend a 
a great deal of energy um, working for causes that they believe in. And I've, I've always done that as well. Try to play for free and raise as much money as you can for something that is important to you, whether it's community radio or the SPCA or education for underprivileged people. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot, there's a million things as we all yeah, know. So. Yeah. Um, so you enjoy doing better. You do, you've done, I'm sure tons of benefit shows over the years. Yeah. Well, tons more than I can even, <laughs> as, as, as most musicians. Yeah, do, absolutely. Um, so what does it mean to you, um, to release this, the, the, the retrospective or the, the series of albums, um, during this pandemic, um, is this a time, right? I mean, the, the label was telling you, um, this is a good time to do this cause you're not doing anything else, but, um, or not able to tour like everyone else, but yeah. in having such a long and storied career with the mother hips, what is, is, is there, what, things does this make you think of in terms of the history of this band um, and the direction that you're going? I, I think that the fact that our 30th anniversary as a, as a band having that sort of coinciding with the pandemic is obviously just strictly coincidental. Um, but it, it was a year where I think a lot of people, musicians and just music consumers alike had a chance to, maybe not a chance, but they had, they had the necessity to sort of reexamine what music meant in their lives. Um, And so it was a good time, good time to put out a bunch of music because I don't think anyone was taking music for granted during this year. Anyone that loves music was, was reminded of how important yeah. it is to them during this crazy last year that we had, whether that means they were spending a lot of time alone in their homes, listening to music and reliving good times, or whether they were just simply missing the, the experience yeah, of going to see live that. concerts or if, yeah. Or if they were bands, they were missing the, the experience of, playing live concerts as well as the income stream that yeah. results from doing that. So it was a, it was a poignant time in the world um, for music yeah. specifically, I think. And I know I was reminded of how important music is to, to us collectively, not just to me, but to everyone. And I, I think that's, when you make a living playing music all the time, like I've done for many, many years, it is something that I've taken for granted and something that can even seem a little bit mechanical at times because it's, it becomes a job mm-hmm. at times for sure. And, and it's, it's true. Something that's true with any type of job that deals with something that's beautiful or something that is precious like um like being a ski patroller or something like that is something I think about too. I bet those guys get sick of <laughs> deep snow and they get sick Sometimes. of the mountains and they and they get sick of skiing because they have to do it all the time. And that's if you can avoid that happening, I think that's obviously way better. You never want to 
you never want to like get sick of the thing that you love the most, but that's what you. So, were you saying that this, this, that this break period kind of served to help you put things in perspective and not take what you were doing for granted and make you kind of want it more? Like, are you saying sort of you needed a break? Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess that you could. That's not what I was saying that I needed a break, but that the break. I, I guess I did. Yeah. I didn't know I did, but, but yeah, it's always a balance. Um, yeah. Trying to keep from being like jaded and just being tired of the whole, the whole thing. Yeah. I think a lot of people are kind of reassessing and saying like, yeah, I, I, I used this period wisely and it was good that I was able to, to kind of slow down and take stock. Yeah. And I, and yes, exactly. And I think that now that things are, opening up you know whether they really are or not but that's sort of the indications that we have i know for myself and i bet there's a lot of other people that feel this way too whose lives were drastically altered by this yeah is that i don't know that i'm not necessarily wanting everything to go back to the way it was just before all of this happened it's not like it's not a matter of just like i just want to get back to where i was before i don't actually i want to keep going somewhere else that wasn't I see now that where I was could, it could be improved and it could be changed. It could be different. And my vision for what is possible or what is desirable for me is, has shifted since a year ago for sure. Hmm. That's interesting. What do you think is, what are those things that are more possible that you're saying? Like, so your, your perspective on the future sort of, um, has been, um, shifted a little bit in a positive way. I hope it's a positive way. I, I think it's too, it's too soon for me to say if it's positive, but uh-huh. I, I know I, I don't, it was just easy to reflect on what it was before because at first everyone was just panicking watching what was very recently slip yeah. away. It was just, just crumble. like <laughs> the calendar just drains like a, like yeah. water going down the drain, just like all these shows just disappeared. And it was like your, your impulse is to, try to pl- block the hole. Like, don't, I don't, I don't want this. I need, I need that. Yeah. But then once it's gone and then once you have a few months to just sit around and reflect, once I did, I, I realized that there's a lot about that stuff that I, I don't miss. I miss the security. I miss knowing that I'm going to be okay in certain ways taken care of. But I, there's a lot about it that I just didn't miss. And, and, um, kind of like the rat race element going quickly and just trying to do everything all the time. I I don't really, I didn't miss that. Now I feel it coming back already. It's, it's already like life is getting crazy again, but my perspective at least is a little bit different than it was. Yeah. Are you referring specifically to the rat race of playing as many shows as you can? Yeah. And, and anyone, anyone else's version of that, just having to work a lot to just, pay for your lifestyle to pay for the choices that you've made, whether it's a mortgage or your health insurance is crazy expensive. If you're self-employed, right. Yeah. Car payments, yeah. childcare stuff, um, medical bills. Right. And you, you all that stuff. Yeah. Debt. And yeah, of course. Um, you were just telling me that you just played some shows over the weekend. Was that your first time back at it in that way? Because they were indoors, uh, it was, indoor, socially yeah, distant it, shows. It was the 
it was the first time that, that, that Mother Hips had played indoors in, since like a year, like January of 2020. 20, yeah. I guess, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Or maybe even December. So yeah, that was, that was the first time. It was, it was a little strange. It was awesome, yeah. but it was definitely a little weird. It was in a casino at the Crystal Bay Club, which is the music room in this casino, uh-huh. small casino in Lake Tahoe. And so, I think the circulation, the ventilation in those places is quite good. Yeah. So I'm told. <laughs> yeah, that's what they told you to get you to come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to get everyone to right. come. But it's still like half capacity, so it's even though the shows were you know sold out technically, you walk out on stage and it's just it. it there's like 200 people there instead of like 600, right? Or whatever, or whatever it is. It just it still feels weird because it's just not you, you don't get that energy that a full house has that's a specific kind of energy that happens when people are all packed together right i know right yeah i was looking i saw this um shot of a daytime show that um uh that warren haynes just did i can't remember the exact location but yeah it was just this when it's a nighttime show they've there've been outdoor shows where you see nighttime and it doesn't have that much of an impact but it was daytime and it's like oh man i guess warren's kind of feeling younger like way back 40 years ago when he was just open for bands to like a half full <laughs> venue <laughs> <laughs> i get that's a that's a great perspective for him to have. I, i'm yeah. just assuming i've just sort of made it, that it just is, i've like, made that yeah. joke too i made that joke too it's like a lot of these what I have been doing quite a bit of is doing like backyard shows mm-hmm. for people like private mm-hmm. stuff. And I have bought a little PA system so I could just provide the sound. And it's oh, like, man. I feel like I was, I'm like going back to 1990. Right. Well, was there a part of that that was fun? Like setting up your own little sound system. In the, I mean, it's, I like doing those shows, but no, there isn't a whole lot about that perspective. That's I, I would rather not mm. regress back to it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. But it's but it's fun to play. It's fun to interact with people in that intimate setting. I do. Yeah, like there's got to be a positive of having that kind of immediate fan feedback, right? Of just being in somebody's backyard. Yeah, and you can talk to people. They're just there. You can just say, "Hey, what do you guys want to hear? I'm, I'm here for you guys. So just tell me what you want me to play, and I'll play it. And if I don't know it, I'll still play it. I'll try <laughs> it. And if I screw up, just don't don't get mad. And it's a much more casual, and that, that's kind of cool. I think. I think people like like that. I'm not positive. But I, I like right, it. Right. So, um, and how did those shows end up for you? I mean, what was kind of your final analysis? Did you have to wear a mask? No, no. Um, no, the band didn't wear masks. And the audience was supposed to, but they did mostly. But I, I think I wasn't really paying that close attention, honestly, but... I think people by the end, I think people were kind of like not wearing masks and it sort of, it sort of like got looser as, as it went on. Drink. As, that as was it, the, that's the concern, will. right? Yeah. And so I don't, I don't know. I, I have mixed, I'm glad we got to do it and I support the Crystal Bay Club for doing that. I think people are grateful for it, but realistically, I, I don't know how, how possible it is to really make it super safe because I just, I think the nature of those events is just that it could start out a certain way, but it, 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 you just kind of lose, it just drifts into the way it's going to be. I've seen that 
several times over the last oh yeah months. just that drinking and judgment sort of just take hold and people have start having a good time and just hang out and whatever yeah which is what you want to happen right. in general but it is what happens just for the, whether you want it to or not it's just the way those things go so i, I don't know hopefully everyone's okay Hope, you know i don't i don't feel super carefree about it but i I think everything was right. Okay. Right. Um, I hope so. yeah, I sure mean, I it's, so. um, God, we, we don't know where everything's going to go. I mean, things just seem to start coming back slowly and, and, um, you know, hopefully there won't be a ton of infections that just occur out of this, you know, and we can just keep moving forward. I mean, I really hope, I really hope not. I, yeah. I, There's never going to be like a day when it's just okay yeah, to do everything no. back to normal. It's going to always be these little degrees of, taking little risks and trying to manage those risks. And then hopefully in six months, you know, by the time the holidays come enough of those steps have been taken so that it's pretty, pretty much back to normal, but who knows? I, yeah. We, I don't know. We could have a whole nother wave. I well, guess. I said I hope not, uh, in New York times today, there was a story about how um, getting to herd immunity probably will never happen. <laughs> we're just like not too, enough people yeah. are just getting vaccinated anyway and we'll see what happens i mean i i i, I hope for the sake of the music industry yeah. that this thing gets back to some semblance of normal but we're moving in a direction now so right we are and i just hope it's the right direction i hope it's the right choice to make i don't know it, as far as the state of the music industry goes yeah that's it's affected it so much and it's affected collectively and individually pretty much everyone that's in that industry and many other industries too yeah. of course the restaurant yeah. industry yeah. entertainment industry it's and crazy. and every time i pull up um and to buy tickets for a show in october november at a new venue um, not a new venue but a venue that i haven't gone to in quite a while like the first show at like the vic or the riverside in milwaukee or it's owned by axs now so that's changed the face of the industry as well, Please. you know? Grab. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. And, and that's, that's, that's scary. And for, for me and for the mother hips, we've always been, we've always been so independent. Um, we were on a major label for, mm -hmm. for a yeah. few years in the early nineties in the mid nineties. And, but other than that, we've always kind of had to just rely on, our own I don't know I, I feel like we've always been a little bit apart of apart from the music industry in, in a way like we kind of just have our own little cottage industry that we've never made mm -hmm. a whole bunch of money selling records so when you know the whole streaming thing went down and all these people lost all mm. this revenue didn't really affect us because we never mm. really made that much revenue from that anyways it's always just been live live music that that has paid our bills and so obviously the pandemic hurts yeah. deep because that was that's all we have but but you know i pretty quickly adapted to that and figured out i saw other people doing facebook live things and asking for virtual donations or ticket sales um and at first i was really turned off by it my first reaction was like repulsed by it but then I decided to try it and I saw how it could work really well. And I saw that people were more than willing to 
pay what they thought it was worth for them yeah, to see me play songs. Whether it was a buck or five bucks or 20 bucks that or feel? 50 bucks. It, it was sort of like the honor system. It felt amazing. It was, it was hum, humbling. Again, there's that, that word again, but just that it's basically like putting a, like, some eggs out on the on sidewalk with a sign that says right pay eggs, what you want you know five or, you know yeah. five dollars yeah. a dozen yeah yeah or pay what you want that's really what it is and and instead of people taking the eggs and not paying anything it, it was kind of the opposite people were paying more than yeah they had needed to and that was pretty incredible and that that goes back to what i was talking about about being reminded right. of how important music right. is for people. And so not only did I not feel ashamed of sort of asking people to make donations, it, it I was pleasantly surprised at how generous people were and still are actually. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, certainly there's a recognition by fans and people understand how, what a, difficult position and and what a difficult situation this is for musicians in the music industry as a whole and people want to help help you and help other um uh other bands thrive and and well survive at least for right now yeah yeah and i that's it's been great but it also brings up that that point where the musicians themselves usually get more obviously get more attention than the other people involved in making live shows happen. That true, right? And I think yes. the people that really got that really got hit hard were people that couldn't go on Facebook and do a live stream. Yeah, it's yeah. Not really, they're, they're, yeah, or they're working for a venue, right? Yeah, or with, you know, roadies for a band, crew people, yeah. or or even like drummers and bass players who couldn't just go and take requests for an right. hour every week. Play Moby Dick, and uh, what do you want to pay me? Play the drum solo from uh, yeah, <laughs> Moby Dick, yeah. yeah. And so those those kind of people would have to get even more creative to figure out ways to do it. And there were some people that did it for sure, but right. for me it was relatively straightforward. I could just say, "What do you guys want to hear me play?" I'll yeah, tell me a few days in advance, and I'll play them, and I'll I'll do it. And it was easy. Yeah, yeah. And I love your solo stuff, by the way. It's wonderful. Thank wonderful. You. Did you so but Thank you grew you. up in Southern California and you have this incredible love for country music. Like how did that develop and where did that come from? <laughs> Not that the two are mutually exclusive, but I wouldn't and then to to see where you ended up and your your roots seem to be like this pure very beautiful country music. Well, I I don't know. It, it I sometimes I feel a little self-conscious about that because growing up in Los Angeles obviously it, there was no, I was not exposed to country music. Kenny, Kenny Rogers. Sure. Yeah. But I didn't even know that was country. I'm not even sure that would be considered country. Maybe music, not but like the gambler. So yeah. like everyone, everyone knew right. that. But to me, that was no different than like Lionel Richie. I didn't, it was just cool. music. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't really until I got kind of deeper into the birds that you know sweetheart of the oh, radio i heard that mm -hmm. record and um and then i from there i went and i that's how i discovered merle haggard mm -hmm. but it's really not that far of a jump because you know the the bakersfield thing was only a hundred miles north of where i grew up true so it's not true really, 
it's not really geographically, it's not really that hard to figure out. And a lot of that stuff from Bakersfield was recorded right in Los Angeles where I was living. But, um, I don't know. It just came, it it just came around. When I was a kid, I was definitely not aware of country music. Right. Well, you grew up in Manhattan beach, so maybe more like surf punk stuff. (laughs) That was pretty popular. Yeah. Yeah. The punk punk rock was a big thing. I was a little young to really get too involved in that. My brother, my older brother was definitely going to shows and he played in a punk Uh band and, like Black Flag, Agent Orange, Agent Black Orange. Flag, and Agent Orange, man. Rodney on the Rock, dude. I was like, yeah, that was all just right in mm-hmm. where I grew up. Yeah, where yep. you grew up, that was all mm-hmm. right there. So, well, I'm referring to Rodney on the Rock for listeners. That's KROQ, which I was a, a new wave station and. LA, but Rodney Bingenheimer was the DJ and we would bring in all kinds of like tiny bands or larger bands and indie bands and, and, and play them on the, on the radio. Yeah. He was yeah, like a visionary. Yeah. Yep. He was really finding people. Remember that, remember that the three o'clock, you ever remember that? Name? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but the Neo psychedelic movement, three o'clock dream syndicate, yeah. green on red. Yep. Yeah. That was cool. Steve Wynn's playing a bunch of independent shows and doing um, just with him and a drummer. You know, Steve Wynn from Dream Syndicate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love that movement. You were, were you a fan of uh, three o'clock? Yeah. Yeah. And the Bengals. The Bengals. Right. Yeah. Uh huh. You know, the Paisley, the Paisley underground. They, they got yeah. signed to like by Prince, you know, that was. Oh, right. Strange. Right. The right. Prince right. got into that thing. Uh huh. Interesting. It's totally odd, but. Kind right. of makes sense in some way. So, but because yeah. I got into Prince not because I knew anything about soul music or R and B or anything like that, but I just got into it because I was into the Three O'clock, and then they got signed by Prince. Mm. So I listened to like Purple Rain, right? Not even knowing like anything about Prince, it was just like, oh, here's this record. And yeah, I loved that record I know, so right? much. And to me, it was just sort of like in that same zone as like the Bangles and the Three O'clock. I, I didn't really like know how far apart those things really were well that's the beauty of it you can either look at it as just the album of an incredible artistic development or just an album that fit into that here only enters this other album but if you look at the yeah, history it was just of like the, the next record in my right, in my progression right 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 and i didn't know right what a giant step that was. Yeah, exactly <laughs> and it's not really like i don't know it was interesting I wasn't even aware of all that stuff until I was much older. Interesting. So I'm really, um, on, on what musical basis did you connect with your buddies from the band that became Mother Hips? Was it on the countryside or was it on this, like, sort of neo-psychedelic, no, it was poppy on, side? It was neither. It was mm. just like rock. It was it's like zap. Mm, mm-hmm. you know, just like good old-fashioned dorm room. Love that. Just smoking weed and listening to hard rock. Yeah, right on. Black Sabbath. What's your favorite Zeppelin album? Zeppelin. It's hard to say. I mean, that's a tough question. That's a hard one. (laughs) It's I mean, you know, all of them. First four. I don't know. My favorite one is the first four. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But even that isn't really. I mean, physical graffiti is pretty outrageous too. But that was. I was so into that and like somehow i got into i was really into like grand funk railroad mm-hmm. which is kind of odd but i loved them 
you know, in the dorms in like 1989, it was kind of like, if you were like a white kid with long hair, you either loved Zeppelin or you were like trying to play some, you, you know, it was just, I just like ran into those guys and it right. was just like, you don't have to, like, you, it's not like you say like, who, who are you into? It was just like, let's play a whole lot of love. There was, you <laughs> Everyone, didn't have to like, yeah, discuss yeah, yeah. it. It was just, that's just what yeah, it was. Yeah. Of course. Right. Especially if you're a guitar player. So, right. yeah. And I was a singer who could not sing my father <laughs> plant. It was, I hate, I was so bummed. I was, I grew up singing in like choirs and uh. stuff. And then when I started listening to, I mean, I always listened to rock and roll, but it was like Buddy Holly and R- Little Richard. I was into like the oldies and like mm-hmm. Beach Boys and stuff. But then when I started hearing Led Zeppelin, I was like, that's, I want to do that. But I couldn't do it. I tried to sing like that. Just, oh, there's only one guy that really can. <laughs> but it is a whole style. I mean, you know, they're after Robert Plant. There's all, you know, Richard Coverdale. Yeah, whatever. yeah, yeah. Um, Not Richard, but uh, David? David Coverdale. There's a bunch of dudes yeah. that could that it was, can sing in that register, and a lot of them are really amazing. But you, you go all the way up to like Chris Cornell and and those guys. But that's not I, as much as I wanted to sing like that. I quickly realized that that was never going to happen. I can sing that high. I just it's just falsetto. It's not. It, it uh-huh. doesn't sound like that. So I had to figure out how to sing rock and roll, but sing it lower. And I, Mick Jagger was a good place to start but even he was has a higher mm-hmm. voice than i do yeah so i had to kind of figure out and then like johnny cash i guess that's actually probably the the first exposure to country music that i that i really had is that when it once i was actually making mm-hmm. music myself but i didn't think of jo- johnny cash as being mm. country really i didn't because he sort of transcended that genre kind of like kenny rogers too like where yeah just they were so popular that it wasn't really like you don't look at Johnny Cash and go like that guy's like a redneck or that guy's a hick. He doesn't. Yeah, he, he trans- sort of definitely transcended the genre like to genre to a, like a, a higher level and yep. um, crossed crossed over. Yeah, and he was very well. Yeah, he was rock yeah. and roll for sure. And so I love when I first heard Johnny Cash, I was like, I could sing kind of like maybe not quite that low, but I could sing kind of like that, and I was so stoked i found something that was edgy it was really cool that wasn't robert plant and then so so yeah that actually i never thought about that but that's probably i was definitely singing johnny cash songs long before i ever heard of ah okay i never thought of that before but that's that's definitely true well that could be the next uh cover album johnny cash yeah 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 (laughs) Yeah, I, I I put it I put a Johnny Cash song on my on a couple records ago. I did. I still miss someone. Uh huh. And I was I recorded that whole record at Johnny Cash's cabin in Tennessee. I got to go there. Oh really? Oh wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. But yeah, the Mother Hips were on the same label as Johnny Cash for on American recordings. Oh right, Rick Rubin's label. That was the yeah, one. Yeah. So we got to like you guys were with him we, that were there for like five or six years. Yeah. And we got to play with Johnny Cash. We got to open for him a couple times and got to meet him a few times. Wow. Wow. I'm not sure if we ever opened for him, but we might have at the Fillmore, I think maybe one time. I can't remember. But we were there. And yeah, yeah, we got to open for him. Yeah. Because he came wow. into our dressing room and introduced himself. There's a picture of all of us like standing there. Oh, amazing. So what was that like? Yeah. What kind of impact did that have on you? It was huge because I was really into Johnny Cash and 
who, I mean, who wasn't? I mean, yeah. Such a legend. And that was right when Rick Rubin produced that record cash. Mm-hmm. And so Johnny cash was like, had almost like reinvented himself and he was relevant to the young, younger people. So it was like as cool as cool could get. Yeah. Wow. Cause he was still cool. Johnny, he was Johnny cash, but I th- he had been kind of, you know, he got rediscovered by a whole new generation. Yeah. That must've been amazing to and open we for like, him at the time. Hey, it was incredible. It was the most exciting thing. Yeah. We got to be like in one of his music videos and oh no kidding it, yeah it was it was really crazy wow but um and so but you were with rick for like on that label um for about five years or so until like 1996 was that um yeah. difficult when you guys parted ways with um with that label yeah it was it was it was terrifying yeah it was it was really scary yeah it was kind of like a little personal pandemic you know like yeah. it was sort of that same feeling except the rest of the world was fine and we were just like to get dropped from your label when you're that that's all we had that's all we were that's all we ever did we toured and toured and toured and toured and that was just all we did and then all of a sudden the label said no more tour support we're dropping you as a result of just yeah. like sales of one album, poor sales of all the they put out three of our records and none of them really sold. Mm-hmm. And they dropped a bunch of I think they dropped like half the bands on the roster, so we didn't feel like it was super personal because mm-hmm. a lot of bands got dropped on that same day. But it was it was not a good feeling, yeah, for sure. Because that was to be to be on a label like that was a pretty prestigious thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then our managers quit right around the same time. And we were addicted to drugs. And we didn't have any money. It was that was a tough that was a tough period. Oh, what kind of drugs um prompt issues and Oh, just heroin. Just yeah. Mostly that. Yeah. You name it. Yeah. What do you got? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> But so I mean, for what pretty, it's worth, from pretty, my perspective as a newer fan, I think the music that you guys um, produced after that point was stellar. It still is. Cool. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks. I, I think I think so too. I mean, I, I listened to those records that were before that. That I think I think there was some good stuff, but I could hear like that we were kind of screwed up a little bit. Oh, really? We probably could have put it better performances in if we weren't so messed up. Oh, okay. Who knows? So that could have been a factor. Well, it's sort of all sort of one big, <laughs> one big package, right? But did that give you kind of a grit and determination um, from that point going forward? Um, and because uh, you were you were you were saying before how um, you know it sort of gave you kickstarted you into these sort of indie indie roots that um, you, you guys have had for quite a while now. So. Yeah. So what, where, where we were at that point was that we had, we had already, you know, before American, we had already put out our own, our first record on our own mm-hmm. label and it was, we sold a lot of them and we were already pretty popular in California. Mm-hmm. So we already had a taste of doing it on our own, but then we were fortunate enough to get on this major label, which allowed us to go and play a bunch of shows all over the country. And, um, 
So when we got dropped, we still had markets all over the country that we could go and make money. Mm-hmm. We don't really have that so much anymore, but at that time we still did because we were servicing those markets all the time. So I don't think any of us felt like we had true grit or gumption or anything at that time. We were pretty beat down. We were pretty freaked mm. out. But nevertheless, we, we just soldiered on. We didn't know what else to do. It wasn't like we had any options at that point. And we were still pretty young. We were not even 30 yet. So we just by virtue of being yeah. that age, we had this, we could just do, you know, we could do it. We knew how to put one foot foot in front of the other, despite the terrible odds. <laughs> well, you guys knew how to play live too, so clearly. We did it. Yeah, we knew how to play live and we knew how to write songs. And we got our drummer quit and we got a new drummer who we still have, mm-hmm. John Hofer. And we all got, we got clean. First of all, that was pretty much the first thing we did. And, and that was the first time that we had ever gone from being messed up to being sober and having to play shows. So that was kind of like, it felt, it felt like a really bright light was shining hmm. on you the whole time. Cause we just didn't know how to play sober, clean and sober. We'd never done it. But we got used to that and we made a record called Later Days for like 50 bucks. Love that. Love it. Cost it costs like $50. <laughs> really? Because the, the producer and the engineer, Jason Hiller, was generous enough to make the record for free, basically. He just took pity on us and said, man, you guys are screwed. <laughs> you need help. It's a bunch of fucked up yeah. guys. I'll just you like, guys are going to, you're oh. just about to be done if someone doesn't help you. So he set yeah, up his some recording bucks. equipment and 50 bucks and like a percentage of points on foreign revenue or a future no, revenue. No, he just or? did it. He set up some recording equipment in his parents, um, pool house in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. And we just made, it just made a record and Damn. that was it. And it was, it, it was well received. We were lucky because it was way different too. It was, it was like, it was a big departure from the, the our first three records. It was more country. Right. It was like a country. It was like country rock, and that's something that yeah. we hadn't really done. So that was a, that's probably why I liked it so much because I really do love country rock yeah, a lot. So do I. I love it so much. Yeah. It might might have been like a really. It was just a sketchy time. We didn't know what we were doing. That was the record that we made. We didn't like set out to make a country rock record. It was just that was it. Right. That's what happened. Right. And what other markets did you would you tour in? Well, we we would play everywhere. We played every freaking city that there is in the United States, pretty much. Mm-hmm. But the ones that were significant to us were back then. I, I can't even remember. It, it doesn't really matter. But you know, just like we could do okay in like Boston and New York City and mm-hmm. and like more Western though, like like um sun valley idaho we kind of had like a ski resort thing going on we could play like in denver boulder and yeah it was convenient but um aspen and winter park and steamboat and salt lake city and like i said sun valley idaho tahoe and we we would play down in like St. George, Utah, down in Southern Utah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Oddly, 
we had a bunch of Mormon fans at that point, which is kind of cool. I don't no know kidding. Why. Maybe it's because our record was called Later Days. But oh, the sort of the religious connotation the latter, of that. The I latter just day got like a, the latter day saints. Oh, uh, I don't know. Yeah. But we had a bunch just of got a kind of a California slang vibe from that. But you will be. I me too. But I'm not a Mormon, <laughs> so I can't. Yeah, but it was yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. So we, maybe we, it was because they knew you guys got clean and they just wanted to support you. We were good, wholesome no, I don't guys. Know. All of a sudden, but a yeah, lot of those exactly. people are still my friends. Yeah, that we, we that we had some good greatest time. snow on earth, though, man. Yeah, yeah, Alta. So yeah, so just um, so just touring hard and making your way around the country to uh, to places where they liked you, right? I mean, you guys toured toured a ton, you know. I mean, um, I, yeah, I we kept at are, it. We kept at it for a lot of years after that. Mm-hmm. And kind of, I would say generally what happened was that those markets started to kind of just like slowly dwindle and it was just becoming harder and harder to get that far afield and come home with any money. Mm-hmm. So you kind of closed down the radius a little bit. We had to. Yeah. And then, and then at some point we started, um, we gave up on the, on the van and we just started flying to places instead. And that's mm-hmm. still how we do it. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. We changed so you could, don't have we, to like do a whole routing thing that's based on driving. You can just go and fly into a, a mm-hmm. market and, 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 and hit that. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that's, we, we switched to that model probably like almost 20 years ago. And that's kind of how we've always done it since then. Weekends basically. Cause that's where you make the real money. We try not to play uh, okay. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday nights ever. Cause it's just. Right. That's what you end up like buying with the profits that you made on Thursday, Friday and Saturday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, um, and, uh, when, so when you would fly, you, then you would, how'd you get all your gear out there? We, we, we still do it this way. We just bring our pedal boards and our guitars and then we rent backline or we, um, team up with bands that want to open for us that have gear that they'll let us use or that we can rent from them. Oh, Interesting. Mm-hmm. Is that an uncommon model? I I think so. I'm not really sure. I'm no expert on it. I only know my own experience, but I, yeah, I don't think it's real common because it sort of takes this, it, the, you have to be a certain kind of band to, to like, you have to be well known enough so that people would be willing to let you use their gear. Yeah. But you have to be unsuccessful enough so that you can't bring your own gear. So there's only like a few bands that sort of, fit in that in in that little venn diagram like well known enough so that people want to open for you and they let you use their amp but not well known enough so that you can just bring your own freaking amp right right so i don't think there's that many bands that do it like that and i wouldn't recommend it (laughs) it sounds (laughs) a little it sounds it sounds um less than optimal from just um not having your own gear and stuff but you know who knows it worked yeah 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 of course but it's just it's just it's only rock and roll whatever (laughs) yeah but i don't don't know if there's like more logistics or less or fewer logistics (laughs) there's definitely less there's there's fewer because yeah there's fewer but but it's not without its challenges sometimes you get an amp that just doesn't work for you. It might work for the other guy right. who owns it, but it doesn't yeah, work yeah, for yeah, you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Then you just, it's hard to get your rocks off when you can't yeah. sound the way you need to sound. Right. And you can also blow up people's amps. 
you know that oh yeah that can be expensive good, right you know, no that's not that's not a good look not a good look right no. the word gets out for that right I guess that's no. I guess that's happened to you a couple times, or at least once. Well, ants just ants. You can smoke an ant, but that's what happens to ants. Yeah, eventually they all get smoked. Yeah, so yeah. They can be fixed. How much do you feel a um, uh, part of the um, you know Northern California music legacy, or just California music? I don't know. Not 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 that much. Yeah. So is it weird when Could like you'll be talked about in that those, those kind of terms the the california mother hips bay area northern california band no 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 i, I it's not weird i, I just don't, i just i think that mostly when we get talked about like that it's just like promoters just trying to make us sound more important than we are which is what promoters happen right to. well it's called promotion so i don't know <laughs> for promotion yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i don't i don't know we're, you know, we've been around for a long time. We've played a lot of shows. Yeah. We have a lot of yeah. fans around here. Yeah. But how much impact? I don't know. We don't get invited to play like the big festivals in Northern California, really. Pretty much get don't get on those. Some of them we do if we're friends with the people that put them on. Like Hardly Strictly Bluegrass, we get to do yeah. that. And Outside Lands, yeah. got to do that a few times. And High Sierra, we've done it some, but not, we don't. We don't do it as often as a lot of bands do. Some bands get that every year. Right. And we've never become part of like the fabric of the High Sierra Music Festival, yeah. which is the biggest music festival in Northern right. California. Right. That, so the Hypnic Fest, is that, um, was that sort of why you guys are involved in that too? Um, because you sort of felt like you were being overlooked by other festivals? Um, what's that kind of look like moving forward too? Well, the way that started was that we we had thought we were going to get on High Sierra, mm-hmm. uh, and we were used to being asked very late because for some reason every time we've ever gotten asked to play that festival, it's been like super late offer, yeah, like an afterthought almost, which is fine. I'm happy to play it regardless of when I get asked to do it, but we didn't get it, and it was Fourth of July weekend, and we didn't get the offer, and we were kind of chapped and we just thought like well we got to do something we got to play and our friend Britt Gavea who is who runs a, a company called Folk Yeah that puts on a lot of concerts he's we must have been talking to him or something he said let's let's do a show in Big Sur mm. it's a great time of year to be in Big Sur and so we of course who wouldn't want to do that so we went and played a couple days at the Henry Miller library in Big Sur mm-hmm. on July 3rd and 4th or whatever it was. And it was so cool. And it, people were so stoked on it that we decided that we would do it again the next year, but that we would move it to a place where there was camping on site, like a real music. Festival. Wow, cool. And so that was, I don't know what year that, well, this is 13 or 12. So that must've been 2008 or something mm-hmm. like that. And so the next year we did it at the Fernwood Resort, which is just up the roadways. And there's we did it in a campground so people could come and camp. And it's small. It's like 500 people. Right. And it's just a little different. It's not a sweltering hot. It doesn't smell like cattle. Yeah. There's no porta potties. There's no lines for anything. It's not dusty. Oh, sounds like my fest- my kind of festival. I know. <laughs> me too. So once we sort of figured out that we could just do that. 
that it just sort of took pressure off of worrying about not getting invited to other big, bigger festivals. But it's, but it's like insular though. It doesn't expose us to people that like, if you don't know who we are, then you wouldn't end up. There's no way you'd ever even hear about yeah, it. Yeah. So it's like almost like giving up on trying to like get more popular and just focusing on ourselves and the people that already know us and just making that experience even deeper and better. Is that kind of what you're focused on since then? Is that sort of like a, um, a philosophy of yours now? It, it, it is. I hadn't thought of it until I just said it like that, but yeah, maybe, I mean, it's, it feels like, like that's sort of the way that you're going about things these days. I mean, over does, maybe over the does, last yeah, decade, I, because there's a point I, when I mean, a band's going to reach what it's critical mass, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I don't mean that in the bad way. It's just like, and I love your music. I mean, um, and then you sort of play to the people that love you <laughs> and you can deepen that relationship. Kind of it's kind of what you should do. Yeah. I mean, you have to play the music that you want, that you need to play, that you want to play. But as far as marketing or anything like that, we, we, we just, we just try to serve the people that want to hear us right now. That's kind of, that's a great place to be. I mean, sometimes it ends up that that's millions and millions and millions of people. And sometimes it doesn't, (laughs) that would be nice. Probably. Yeah. Well, you can only be you, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, an, it's, yeah, it's just, I think our band and our musical choices and stuff just sort of, it's just kind of a specific person that can, that can dig it, that can like it. And, oh, what do you think that specific person is? I don't know. Me? He was going to say, yeah, just say you, dude. That's the easy answer. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. We just, we, we, we definitely, you know, Greg and I definitely always tried to steer away from what was popular. Mm-hmm. And I know, I know of a lot of other really successful musicians that have done that also, but to, but they've made what they, you know, if like, here's what's popular and you know you don't want to go right in the bullseye because someone's already done that. Why would you want to do that? And there's a whole group of musicians that do just that, and they're very successful, and they're awesome. That's cool. But we always tried to like go like way over there. Like we're not. We don't want to do. If it's obvious, we're not going to do it. Like, what's the opposite of obvious? Let's do that. Or what's like less on? What? Let's try to get a little more uncomfortable. Let's try to do something that's never been done, even if it sounds kind of wacky. So it was in in. in- being off beat and off the beaten path was an intentional choice. At the, when we were in our formative years, yeah, when we first started out, yeah. Uh-huh. And now you're just like that. Just now, you know, it comes natural to you now. <laughs> yeah, now now we're just stubborn and just hardened in our ways. Right. Yeah. You can't get off the beaten path. Nope. You can't get back to the path, even if you tried. No, 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 no. The path is, it's got walls on it. We're, we're in it now. We're stuck. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like a hedge, a hedge, it's a hedge it. maze. It's a hedge maze. Yeah, it's like Jack Nicholson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think, I think, you know, being that age, being that kind of like 18, 19 years old, <clears throat> it's easy to feel like a, a, an outcast or an outsider, like you're different than everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, I don't know. I think when people go to high school, they go to college. There's like kind of a couple of different ways you can like take the social thing. You can sort of just try to get in with the the cool people and try to just be as cool as you can and try to like fit in with whoever they are. And that's like one way of going about it. And then there's like the kind of person that tries to be friends with everybody. That's like not in any clique, but they're sort of like they, everyone kind of likes them, but they're not really popular with any one style of person. And then there's like the freaks that just like intentionally go the opposite of everyone else. So that, so that they're just, never going to be accepted. And I think a lot of musicians fall into that last category. I don't think Greg and I do, but I think a lot of musicians do that. They're so far out there that all the other freaks in society that are hiding go like, Oh, that guy's just like me. That's what I want to do. I want to be like, yeah. I relate to that person. Right. And I think that's what most musicians, not most, but a lot of musicians are in that group. Yeah. But, but, I don't think Greg and I ever felt like we were the total freaks. And this is, I'm not saying we were or we weren't. That's just the way we felt. We definitely felt. Yeah. You have to be authentic like we to yourself, right? Yeah. We didn't feel accepted by anybody, but we also didn't feel outcast by, by anyone. It was just sort of like, we were just sort of like unnoticed. Yeah. And so in what ways did that shape your, your formation in those early, in that early times? Well, because I think the, the mother hips is sort of like, the the brand of music that we in, that we developed it isn't super extreme in any way it's it's weird and it's kind of psychedelic in a way that a lot of other bands are not it, like when we use the word psychedelic it's not the way that most other people use it at least the, what that's my perception of it um we're we're more like we i think of psychedelic as like captain beefheart or something like that it's a little more edgy than like the pink Floyd or something psychedelic like that, experimental. Yeah. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, maybe. And we had some of that and we weren't, we weren't nearly as experimental as we could have been, but we also kind of, we were, we were in Chico. We were in this big frat college town and we wanted to be popular. We wanted to make money playing at frat houses. And mm -hmm. all they wanted to hear was like, big old jet airliner and right. Led Zeppelin. And there was bands that could do that really well. The cover bands that would make tons of money playing yeah. like good versions of Steve Miller and Led Zeppelin and right. that kind of stuff. But we couldn't do that. First of all, even if we wanted to, we weren't that with those kinds of musicians. And I was really into writing my own music. So I didn't want to play. I hated bands that covered other songs. Mm. Hated it. So did Greg. So our mission was to kind of, be as popular as those cover bands were, but playing our own music. Mm. And, um, and we did it. We did it in Chico. At least we, we succeeded. Yeah. That's awesome. But, um, so we were kind of like somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. I think yeah, that's a really great way of putting it, but um, just to hone in on one detail. So does that mean you guys didn't do covers in shows? Zero. We didn't really? do any covers until like, you know, many, many years later when we kind of relaxed and we're like, you know what? It's okay. Like we're not going to play. Awesome. You guys Joker. just went to one. Yeah. We well, guys just went to but, too many. You were, you played too many frats and shit. You were just like, no fucking way. Yeah. Cause Chico was just, cause we would go and watch these guys that were successful mm -hmm. and try to figure out what, what they were doing. Like, how can we do that? 
without playing Steve Miller. Were you ever like banging your head against the wall, just going, fuck, if we, we could, we could do this, we could play covers and we could make more money. No, no, because we actually, as soon as we figured out what to do, we started doing it. And just in some miracle that happens once or twice in your whole life, it worked really quickly. It just started happening. Oh, wow. That's awesome. We became popular like really quickly. So we never were like discouraged. That didn't come until Uh, later on. (laughs) (laughs) Rich. Well, that's good, I guess. That was waiting. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was a good start. We had a really good start. And then we got signed to a major label like really quickly. I barely even knew how to play guitar and we were already signed. Mm. So that was, we were super fortunate. Yeah. We didn't even know how fortunate we were really. Right. They took a flyer on you. It sounded like, and, and it, from a pure business perspective from them, it didn't pay off purely probably had nothing to do with you guys. Certainly nothing personal. we, We gave them, no, no, it certainly wasn't personal, but we were sort of, we were kind of like little shitheads too. We, we just, we, we didn't have the track record to be so confident or so cocky about our choices, but we kind of were mm-hmm. that way mm-hmm. at first. Like they, like Chris Robinson wanted to produce our first or our, our second record. And Chris Robinson is kind of who got us signed on to American because they were Black Crows were on there and they were selling tons of records. Yeah, yeah. And he liked our band and he was really nice to us and he got us signed and then he wanted to produce it and we were like, no way, man. We're we're producing it. You don't know anything about production. Like we <laughs> thought we were way cooler than the Black Crows. We thought like we didn't care that they were selling millions of records. We just heard them and then we heard ourselves and said like, no, they they're okay, but they're like, what we're doing is really what is going to be successful. But yeah. Did you ever say that to Rick Rubin? No, we didn't say it to anyone (laughs) except each other. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's just obnoxious. We should have, we totally should have worked with Chris. We should have collaborated with him. We should have like, right. Yeah. I'm, I don't know. Should have, what the fuck is should have. Right. I mean, I know, yeah, but you guys are being authentic to yourself and that's, and then you can do you do if you, as long as you're authentic to yourself, then you, you can't have regrets. You were doing what you wanted to do. I don't really have, I don't don't really have regrets. I I think, but that I I was just explaining, like we, we could have worked with the label a little bit more. We could have been a little more receptive to their Mm -hmm. suggestions. And then they probably would have been a little more excited to develop us. Cause that's, everyone just wants to like put their stamp on something. It's no fun to like help someone out if you don't have any input at all. Um, you mean, you that, know what I mean? Like that they wanted just, they were, they already had a part of you guys, right? If you were, if you were successful. Yeah. But everyone wants, you, you want to work with someone and you want to collaborate. You don't want to just like dig the ditch for them and then let them, build the building it's like you oh so you came in there and you wouldn't take any of their suggestions and you didn't want to work with them at all yeah we thought we knew we were just like this is the way we're we're doing it it's just not it's not a good way to to, to do yeah all right um (laughs) so interesting to is um to to look back like that i suppose you've been doing that a lot with respect to where you're at right now with the new Mm -hmm. uh releasing all the new albums and coming up on the with the 30th anniversary stuff. Yeah. I mean, you've been doing a lot of this, right? <laughs> a 
a lot of looking back at those at those days, yeah, for sure, which is not something that we would normally be doing at all. Yeah. We've had to listen. I mean, look at this stack of where are they? Oh yeah, look at this. This is insane. I can't even lift it. Look, these are just these are just test pressings. Oh wow! Of, of That's the like run of a couple dozen, a couple in. dozen albums. Yeah, at least. And so, I had to listen to all these. Yeah, know? that's something that I wouldn't ever do. Listen to my old music. So it was fun because it was it was. I got to hear it, and it was like, oh yeah, it brought back a lot of memories, right? And that, and, and it was also happening at the same time we were making our new. Yeah, record. I was going to ask how that kind of dovetailed with what your uh, what you guys just produced. That must have been an interesting uh, juxtaposition for sure. It was cool. Right? I, I would, yeah, I would recommend it to other people <laughs> if you have music that's really old that you, yeah, like go back and remember what you were right doing musically when you were like 21 or 22 how did it affect um what you what you guys just produced because i loved the um uh your uh chorus which was the your most recent album to date i loved it Mm -hmm. loved it oh good thanks yeah thank you yeah yeah this this new record's quite a bit different and i think part partially it's because you know any any musician or artist is going to sort of respond to their previous output with their new one it's sort of you know like we did that so now we're gonna we have to like do this now we can't do the same thing again Mm -hmm. you know you have to sort of conscious effort not to do the same thing you did yeah Mm -hmm. if if not if there's no other conscious effort it's usually just not to do we can't do that again because we just did it but you we just got got done saying that you didn't do things because of marketing reason this is just kind of like a gut feeling that you have that you are not doing the same thing either possibly unintentionally because you just wouldn't or are you saying that oh we did this so we can't do that again no, just strictly from an artistic standpoint that like, there's no reason to do that again. Cause we, we gave it our best already. So now we're going to take a different approach and we're going to try to make this one a little bit different. And just within our own band, there's so many different eras and there's so many different styles that we have sounded like mm-hmm. over the 30 years, mm-hmm. that it's kind of fun to say like, let's make this next record. Let's, let's like go back and reference like our third record and try to like, tap into what we were doing back then. Is that what you're doing? We, we definitely were because we were listening to the test pressings of all these old recordings that we definitely like Greg and I would get together and kind of like laugh about choices that were huh. made and, and kind of like marvel at like, God, what the, can you believe that we thought that was a good idea? Like, wow. Hmm. And then we're like, but maybe it was, maybe we should like, how would it feel to do that again now that we're like 50? Oh, interesting. And so we, we kind of did that. And and that's fun. really cool. Like I said, it's just, it's just music. It's not like it's, well, it's fun just to see the organic development a, of everything. And, and then where you are now and that you're, it, it, it kind of gives, a, um, uh, kind of this, uh, more artistic and cohesive expression to what you're doing now, because you're so tied into what you had been doing at this very moment when you were in the studio recording what yeah. you're doing now, yeah, which gives exactly. it even more. That's a great, exactly. that, that's a great story. It, it was fun. It was fun to, you know, there's a, a couple of times that in a couple of our new songs, there's, we've sort of reference a, 
character in an old song or actually oh, wow, reference that's cool. the title of an old song. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, it's sort of like a, in a way, it's a little bit like a circle jerk. Well, you mean like a to tongue like in cheek kind of thing? Pro- proliferate your own, your own like legacy, you know? Uh-huh, <laughs> so yeah. But the Beatles did it a bunch. A lot of bands do it. If you've been, if you're around for a long time, you can sort of go back and start to yeah. reference your older. Yeah. Stuff. Why not? Like, why not? It's sort of yeah. fun to do. It's like a little secret reference. Yeah. Why super not? cool. Super cool. So when does this album come out Tim? Uh, December. In December. Great. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, what other kind of dates do you guys have? Do you have like a tour planned in the fall or when you, and when you come into Chicago, I got to come out there to see you. Yeah. Um, so we're not coming to Chicago, but we are going to the East coast as a duo. So Greg and I will be going to DC. This is like October, like second week of mm-hmm. October. We're doing DC and Philly and New York and All Boston. Right and then we're doing my daughter um, lives in dc i'll try to i'll try to i'll definitely keep that in mind oh yeah because i wanted to come and see her around that time <clears throat> oh yeah. yeah we're playing a place called jam and java in vienna it's a pretty well known. oh cool band. okay i don't know it but yeah yeah right on and what about full band stuff coming up um at the end of the year yeah we're do- we're doing yeah we got the hypnic i think i think it's hypnic 13 now or, or it might be a redo of 12 i don't rem- i don't remember how we're going to number it but the one that this year's Hypnic is going to take place in September in Big Sur, September 24th mm-hmm. and 25th in Big Sur. Yeah. Gosh, so much, so much great stuff. It's just a, uh, it's a land grab at this point. I know it really is. We have some California dates for sure. I think we're playing out at Catalina Island oh, wow. in August. Yeah. That'll be cool. Oh, f- and we're playing this thing called the beach life festival, which is a pretty large festival in Redondo beach, right at Redondo Harbor. When is that? Is like my Do you remember September 11th? I think September 11th and 12th. And then, um, we're playing, we do our, our annual, um, holiday shows at the great American music hall in San Francisco. Oh, cool. Like is that where that live album dis- was that, was that the, 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 that amazing recent live album, by the way, is yeah. killer. Thank you. Phenomenal Thank stuff. You. Love it. Love it. Like as a, oh, as a good, newer fan, like I got to, you know, hear in just one spot, like ton of stuff from new. Yeah. It's like yeah. a real retrospective. I love that album. Yeah, so, thank you. Thanks a lot. That was from like maybe three years ago at the great American. So was that, was that the new, was that a, this, what you're saying, mm-hmm. this new year's run? Christmas. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's called hips. They, they, they call it hipsmiths, but yeah, it's right before Christmas. Cool. Yeah. And this, I, I think this I is going to be the 28th year we've done it in a row something like that. Oh man. So we didn't do it last year, I guess, because, or did we do it? Did we do it? Oh yeah. We did a live stream. I think we, yeah, this last December Uh we went there and played, but there was no audience obviously. Yeah. 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 Um, cool, man. Well, I mean, I, I, I loved learning so much about, you know, where you've been and where you're going and what the mindset was. This has been really super interesting. And I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to sit down for this, uh, kind of 30 year retrospective a little bit and just a yeah. very small amount of time, but I appreciate you. Thank sitting you. Down, Tim. I appreciate you taking yeah. your time too, Josh. Thanks for uh, the, the thought and for, uh, paying attention to the music. No, cool. Absolutely, man, man. I'm really, I feel, I feel super honored and happy that I got to 
learn about you and learn about mother hips, man. It's really, uh, really great stuff. Thank you. And I just had, um, I didn't tell you this, I should have told you this earlier, but I had, I interviewed Jay Blakesburg on a uh, oh, road cool. case and, uh, you know, he obviously loves you guys. So that was yeah, we're uh, old buddies, fun, yeah. to, fun to kind of connect the dots on that too. Yeah. Jay's, Jay's the best. Yeah. He's really great. He's really great. Well, thanks a lot, Tim, man. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Yeah, you too. Okay. Okay, that was Tim Bloom of the Mother Hips. Just love sitting down with Tim. He was really easy to talk to. I love his like super mellow Californian kind of uh, philosophical way of looking at his life and his career um, appropriately uh, in this year of the 30th anniversary of the Mother Hips. You know, we got super reflective on his life as a professional and of his personal life and how those two things seem to intertwine quite a bit uh, with Tim, um, you know, talking about how COVID sort of affected him and uh, what his, you know, looking at years of touring and being on the road and, um, you know, how that's taken a toll and um, really kind of like an interesting retrospective on his entire career and professional life to date. Uh, Like I said at the top, I'm a new fan, but uh, all this perspective was really interesting, and I can't help but listen to them in a different way. And they're re-releasing all their albums on vinyl, so check out their website. I know I keep saying that, but their stuff is just, um, just fantastic. I loved hearing about how Tim is modifying, uh, you know, going forward in his touring life to suit his current lifestyle needs. And I think that's something that all musicians are kind of looking at coming out of this COVID period, especially if you're, if you're of a certain age and, you know, these guys have been at it for 30 years and I applaud that. And I want to encourage everyone to go take a look at Tim's solo work as well. He's got that amazing, mellow Bakersfield sound going on, and I love that work too. And I'm going to try to make it to Hipnick. We talked about that. Uh, They're kind of uh, the Mother Hips festival that's going on uh, September 24th and 25th in Big Sur. I'm going to do my best to get out there and check that out and encourage everyone to do so. Thanks again for joining me for this special 50th episode of Road Case. And thanks again to Tim Bloom for being here to celebrate the Mother Hips 30th anniversary and talk about his life as a touring musician on this episode of Road Case. Thanks again so much for listening. And I'd like to encourage everyone to get involved with Roadcase. You can do so in a number of different ways. You can email me at info at roadcasepod.com with questions, comments, and even suggestions for guests. Or you can follow us on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're at RoadcasePod. And we have a YouTube channel called Roadcase Podcast. And if you are able to and like to support Roadcase, we have a Patreon site at patreon.com slash roadcasepod. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform. And if you could please rate and review the podcast while you're there, that would be great. So I want to thank Waltzer for this awesome theme music that we have. 
And I want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to Roadcase. We have a lot of great episodes coming up, so I'll see you on down the road. 